This is Spade, Spoon, Soul, a podcast about all the ways food intersects with our faith, from spade to spoon to soul. I'm Brian Sellers-Peterson coming to you from Roslyn, Washington on the land of the Yakima Nation. I am Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Indianapolis, and I'm coming to you from downtown Indy right here in Monument Circle, and we are on the land of the Kickapoo and the Potawatomi and many other tribes, and it is a delight to be back in the saddle with Triple uh, S and our guest today, Hillary Raining, the Reverend Hillary Raining, who is a multifaceted, multi-talented priest in the Episcopal Church, rector of St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and um, someone who I've been talking to for five years, Hillary, when we first talked about all of these intersections we had around yoga and spirituality and food and cooking and gardening and all of these things. And today we're gonna dive into many of those things and talk about the hive and bees and things like that. Well, thank you both very much for that welcome. And yes, Bishop, I feel like whenever we get a chance to actually sit down together, we're already like best friends in the making. I can't wait. It'll be wonderful. <laughs> but thank you so much for the invitation to be on this great podcast. Y'all are doing great work in the world, and I'm excited for our conversation today. Well, we always start with the same question, then we let it go uh, any number of ways. But we need to know, Hillary. Where are you rooted? Yeah, thank what you. What place or community, what place are you rooted? Mm. Currently, I am rooted with my family and my congregation here at St. Christopher's in Gladwin. We sit on the land of the Lenape Nation, and we are so grateful to be a part of this beautiful, beautiful community. Um, I'm also deeply rooted in northeastern Pennsylvania as well, which is where I was born and raised on the banks of the Susquehanna River and where much of my family still lives. So really kind of Appalachian mountain range up there. So river and mountain girl at heart. Uh, And so um, deeply rooted there as well. And then my heart is rooted in much of my indigenous history and what we call in uh, Native American circles, blood memory. My heart is rooted uh, in the Irish world in Ireland, where uh, many of my ancestors hail from, and on my reservation in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, uh, with the Chippewa tribe there, which is where my mother's people hail from. So it's wonderful to be rooted in many different ways with many different ancestors. Love that. Hillary, I will say I spent two weeks ago um, driving through those hills of Pennsylvania for um, a week of running camp and to reconnect with that landscape and to traverse what I call the mighty Susquehanna several times on that journey was such a wonderful thing. It's such a beautiful place to be in and to be from. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you got to spend some time up there. It's they say it's like the oldest river in the world, probably even older, older than the Nile. And you can really feel the energy while you're on it. So I'm glad you had some time there. That's right. Exactly. And so um, so tell us, I mean, talking about place and creation, how does creation nourish your soul? I, I have a sense that that's hard to tease out because it's everywhere in your story and how you live your life. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. And I'll bring in a couple of uh, specifically oriented food and nature practices as part of that uh, conversation. Um, To begin with, my dad is uh, an ecological forester. He just retired. So he's um, he's living his best life at the moment. (laughs) But he spent all of our childhood and all of his childhood outside. Uh, He's an Eagle Scout. He he used his vocation as a ecological forester to help uh, keep forests healthy as an ecosystem and to help landowners actually figure out how to make their 
forests and properties thrive. Uh, and so for me, that was instilled. We were always outside. Uh, if we'd watched more than a half an hour of TV, which we didn't even have cable anyway, being in the mountains, as I said. So we were always like, dad would come through and say, why are you even inside? Get outside right now. So it was a childhood spent in nature. And subsequently, my soul, whenever it's looking for any kind of peace, which is, you know, every 10 minutes these days, uh, I know I have to just go outside for a bit. I need to sit and be with nature or move in it. Um, I love to ski. I love to hike. I love to uh, canoe, you name it. If it's outside, I'm happy, happier. Um, and one of the things that has been uh, new for me this year is I just received my certification in forest therapy, uh, which in some traditions, it pulls from the forest bathing practice from the Shinrin Yuku uh, uh, practice from Japan, which is encouraging people to use the forest as a mindful practice. So um, I, I'm looking to incorporating that in some of my pastoral care work as well. But other other practices uh, that include nature for me include beekeeping, which gets us into our food area because uh, one of the best parts of beekeeping is the sweet, sweet delight of honey at the end of it. Uh, but that was a practice, again, I learned from my dad, who is a fourth, a, a third generation beekeeper, making me the fourth generation beekeeper in our family. Um, and beekeeping is for sure a mindfulness practice. While you're standing there surrounded by hundreds of thousands of little guys, little gals, really, they're almost all women, trying to sting you <laughs> for, for, rightfully so, they think you're taking their honey. And um, they are... Uh, you have to stay calm because if the more you're upset around the bees, the more agitated they get. And the current hive that we use, it's called a Langstrom hive. And it was um, created by an Episcopal priest, um, you know, hundreds of years ago now. And it was, he created this particular hive because he was going through a deep bout of depression. And he found that being outside with nature helped. So he wanted to help be with the bees. So even, even, uh, even in my Episcopalian roots, the uh, the beekeeping comes into play. I'll pause there for a moment, but I have some others I'd love to mention too. I'm still, okay, <laughs> let's back this all up. So first of all, um, there are many things that I'm really curious about, uh, the way of beekeeping <laughs> being a contemplative, <laughs> centering kind of practice. And then these Episcopal, Episcopal, an Episcopal priest creating a beehive. Like, why don't we know these stories? I know, isn't it great? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, let's let we can start with the beehive and work yeah. our way back. That the particular hive that most beekeepers use now, as I mentioned, it's called the Langstrom hive. When he, when Reverend Langstrom created it, he was working at a Philadelphia uh, school for girls, and his his family had suffered a great loss. Uh, his wife had passed on to yellow fever and the great yellow fever epidemic, um, and it was just a time where uh, there was so much grief in the air, not unlike our times that we're living through. And he was uh, like many, uh, many Anglican clergy uh, of that time frame, and certainly earlier was part scientist, part clergy, because so many clergy members were used the nat natural world as a way of displaying God's glory. So it's never been that science and religion has really ever had much of a divide that can sometimes be in American culture today. 
more often than not, it's been looking at the way we can use the scientific method to enhance our understanding of God's goodness and creation. So he found out that bees like a particular amount of space between their combs, and he built the hive with that particular amount of space. It's, it's uncreatively called bee space <laughs> with just enough amount of bee space for them to build out their comb. And he built the, he built the hive that way. And we've been using the same hive ever since there's been very few modifications in the hive. So it's kind of a beautiful, uh, glorious marriage between nature and uh, human stewardship. Yeah. I have had the, the blessing of being up until I moved to, um, Roslyn, Washington, I uh, kept bees, started out on the roof of uh, St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle. I just uh, saw those hives a couple weeks ago, by the way, and I thought- Are they, are, are, are they still purple? They, they, yes, there was two that were purple, and by the way, they were flourishing, so you have you have done a great job. They're looking beautiful up there. <laughs> well, Rob, the, the cathedral uh, apiarist uh, is doing a great job, and um, but, you know, we use Langstrom's um, up there, and um, but you know, I was I was just thinking, you know, there's so many lessons that the bees can teach um, the church. Um, but what you know, um, what's one that really hits you in a big way? It, you know, as you as you are a pastor, what have you learned from the bees? Oh, I love this question because they've taught me so much personally, but as you're mentioning corporately. So a few years ago, I was in a, a meditation session and had a vision. Um, I, I always kind of describe it much like how Peter received the sale when he was in meditation on jo at Jopa, where all these things were laid out for him about what he could or should eat now. And I don't have many visions like that. It was not like a normal thing for me to have a vision like that, but the, the spirit gave me this and it was of a, of a beehive, a particular, a slice of, of honeycomb. And in the center was Christ as the, as the queen bee and all the bees around doing their different various jobs um, in support of, of the queen. And then, you know, going in and out, bringing their, their wisdom uh, into the world. And Part of that vision included how can we make that as a model for the church? And what I didn't know at the time and found out later through a lot of research was that that's actually a model of church that they've been using at least since the Middle Ages. You actually find these very cool old woodcuts uh, of, of uh, the, it looks like the queen bee is the Pope and has a little bit of like a bishop's miter on it. And they have other little baby bees like next to the Pope with incense burners and everything. It's, it's very cool. And there's all sorts of ancient myths around uh, the bees sometimes uh, getting a little bit of the wafer of the host and then building an altar around that wafer host. It's just, it's really cool. But the, the, uh, the idea with this particular meditation was what if we built church more like that, where we're all part of this organic community, this body of Christ and, and all in service to the queen, but bees all, each bee will do several different jobs in the hive over her lifetime. And that's very true for us Christians too. We'll all figure out how to use our gifts for God's purposes throughout our different lifetime. So out of that was born the Hive, which is uh, a online spirituality and wellness community, which I'm delighted to to be the founder of. And through that, it was like, well, how can we how can we support 
these Christian bees throughout the world in doing just that. So the it's been an interesting uh, experiment in Christian community, especially during the time of pandemic when uh, everything had to go online and then suddenly this was already there. So it was it was ready made thanks to the spirit. Wow, that is a, a spirit sort of timing and but rooted in these ancient, you know, this is the moment we're in and but clearly grounded in both ancient and sort of the development of your own call and vocation being lived out in such a multi-generational, beautiful way. I, I'm also struck that people, I, I was thinking as you were talking about, um, you know, the hive and the symbol of that and remembering being at general convention in Salt Lake City and remembering that the, the hive is the yeah. symbol for the state of Utah, which is all about industry and working and everybody contributing. And again, like that's that's one way to think about it, but also this other sort of contemplative, collaborative, um, mutuality kind of symbolism, which I think is so central for how we need to be church now. You know, if we didn't understand it before, we certainly know it afresh now. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. And and a lot of what we do on the Hive, just as you're saying, is based on, on ancient spiritual practices. And it's, it's not as though, when you look at the data, it's not as though people don't want spirituality right now. In fact, people have are believing in spirituality and even things like uh, uh, angels and demons more than they have in, in generations. So it's it's not the lack of spirituality, but they don't believe that the church has uh, practices that will help them go deep enough. So they'll find them in places like Gwyneth Paltrow or Spin Cycle or whatever. And, and at the Hive, we take the position that you know, mystics and Christians in particular have been watching these changes in society happen every 500 years in particular. And there have been practices, ancient practices that have built up for just such times as these. So why not, why not engage in what the church has at its fingertips with these, these ancient, beautiful mystic practices? So we, we really love to use those as much as we can on the hive. So are you finding that people, I mean, what's your, uh, the folks who are engaging the hive and, and I mean, are they Episcopalians or Christians? Are there folks who are coming new to any kind of engagement with institutional church, so-called? I mean, what's, what's the yes mix? And yes. Yeah? <laughs> yes okay. and yes. Yeah. Which makes it such a cool place, right? You know, the, when we started, we assumed a lot of our key demographic would be Episcopalians who were kind of on our, you know, mailing list, et cetera. And that's certainly true, true, but we watched it kind of blossom to be people finding us on the web, people who were, you know, listening to some of our podcasts, et cetera. And it started to morph into people for whom institutional church they had had some experience with and, and couldn't continue for some reason, either a spiritual trauma or in a few cases, they had moved to Japan or something. So they were without a church home and the hive became their church home all the way to people for whom um, they'd never experienced uh, going to a Christian community before, but, uh, but were suspicious to try one because of mul multitude of reasons. So this was a uh, entryway into a type of deep spirituality that they were willing to at least give a shot because it was, um, uh, at, at first you can be a little bit anonymous if you want, as you enter into the hive community and, and as you grow, you're more encouraged to, to participate, of course. So yeah, it's really been a cross gamut sort of thing. We have everybody, everybody from priests and spiritual directors to people who who've never, and will never set foot in a church and everywhere in between. You know, one of the things I love about beekeeping is that we've got 
tons of patron and matron saints. Um, and I'm just going to list a few. And if, uh, and Hillary, I want you to, you know, because a lot of them are Celtic. Um, yeah, I, I got one in particular. You start. Which, where yeah, you let's see. Start? So there, well, there's St. Gobnat, who also there, goes was, by the name of Abigail, St. Abigail or St. Deborah, St. Valentine, yep. and um, St. Ambrose, and, you know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Mm -hmm. I love the tradition of the uh, French beekeepers because Benedict is another one of the patrons, and they put a St. Benedict um, medal on all of their their hives and so you know honestly the list goes on and on it's really <laughs> true where, where you look at it it's funny because it's uh it's very few things that unite so many patron saints together but the bees seem to be something everybody can get on board with and you're you're so right with the celtic influence for so many of these saints um we'll take gobna uh, or or deborah or abigail as an example she's one of my favorites and i recently had an icon written uh in in honor of her by one of my great friends who's an iconographist she's amazing uh Kristen Wheeler. okay we gotta we gotta we'll put that somewhere Okay. Well, <laughs> when, we're, when we're plugging this podcast, okay. Great. It's great. Excellent. <laughs> and what's cool about um, Gobnut's story is she is a person for whom, like many of us, has a really complicated, messy background, right? You know, she leaves this home where she has felt a lot of trauma and physical abuse. And she says to be looking for her place of resurrection. And that's a real Celtic term of saying not only where your spirit will be born, reborn in this lifetime, but where you're likely going to die. Uh, that's how the Celts do, right? Like they are very happy to, to, to mesh life and death all in one. So she journeys and she journeys and she journeys and she's looking for the specific, uh, uh, group of white white deer that the that Jesus has told her to follow and find and she finally finds the place and she builds a, a convent there and at one point she has to defend them uh, by you know marauders coming in and she's a she's a beekeeper so she goes and prays with her bees and they just rise up and take off after these marauders and like keep them away from the entire community so it's one of the reasons she gets beekeeping as a uh, patronage <laughs> isn't that great it's a great Celtic story <laughs> I, I'm going to have to look these up because this oh, they're is good. me and I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Is, Nobody's know. weirder than a Celtic saint. And that's what I love about it. Well, <laughs> that's right. So um, in the, the, the lead up to our conversation, Hillary, you began to touch on, on Celtic spirituality. I mean, this is also interwoven, but this place creation and being grounded in, you know, just, the earth and that more earthy spirituality that is a part of Celtic and indigenous um, traditions. And so can you talk a little bit about how that all com comes together for you and how it coheres? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, in, in the Celtic side of my heart, uh, you know, the, the Celts are famous for almost being long distance walkers, especially the saints. They go from place to place, walking, walking, walking. Many of them refuse to ride animals because they feel like it would do damage to their brothers, the animals, the, you know, horses in particular. And because of that, their spirituality, it's very clear 
they see themselves as partners with creation, not overlords of creation, um, which in some ways seems like a no brainer. But when you look around our world today, uh, we could take a page out of that understanding deeply. It's, it's certainly biblical and obviously uh, scientifically grounded as well, even though that's language they wouldn't have had in their pilgrimage too. They, they looked to creation for inspiration. Uh, when, they were, when they would preach, when they would give lessons, they would sometimes simply stop in their work and just hold their hands out and often a bird would land in their hand or something like that. And, and so for my own life, I take a, a lot of cues from that, um, similar to what I was saying earlier about going outside, but sometimes I'll even stop in the Celtic fashion and just stand with my hands open, hopefully as a symbol of an open heart, just to see what might land in it, um, you know, in big and small ways. It just kind of weaves itself together. Um, and we were mentioning earlier, too, another part of my indigenous heritage uh, is I'm, I'm from the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, and we are very... Um, similar to Celtic spirituality in many ways. There's great studies to be done about the, the two marriage of the two types of spirituality. But one of the things in particular is that they likewise were nomadic people. Um, they would very much stay in the Upper Peninsula area, my particular tribe, but where they would stay would be different diff during different times of the year. So traveling and kind of pilgrimage is a natural way for me to connect and disconnect from what I need to and connect with the spirit. There's something about moving in nature that for me is a go-to spiritual practice that never seems to fail. So, so how do those come together? I mean, are they, so that I love all of that. And what I'm thinking about is you're, you're laying this out is if I were a parish priest um, and I have been and have sought to like, you know, weave in the kinds of things we talked about on Spades Moon Soul into our parish practices. And so I'm thinking, how do you do forest therapy? How do you do pilgrimage locally so that people can begin to bring these things to um, resonate with their common life, even if they're in Gladwin, Pennsylvania or, you know, downtown Indy? What would you say about that? Absolutely. You know, it can be big in small ways. They, studies will show us that even sitting next to a house plant will actually reduce our stress level, <laughs> which is incredible. I think that's, that's the power of plants and nature. But if you want to go even bigger right now, for example, at St. Christopher's, we're engaging in what's known as the season of creation, which is a liturgical season that is uh, all throughout the world and many different denominations engage in it, where for the last leg of ordinary time, uh, ending at about St. Saint, Saint Francis Day, you have propers and you have prayers that are all gauged to give glory to God for nature and to call us to task into taking seriously our call to be stewards of the earth. Um, throughout all of that, they, they give you different readings, different prayers, as I said. We're going a step further this year, not only celebrating Season of Creation, we're starting a series of outdoor services um, that include walking in our labyrinth uh, during the full moon. We'll be doing some prayers around a fire pit. We'll be doing some of the forest bathing practices and meditation, like I said, because it's we're hoping that not only will it feed the parish, 
but be a really great way to bring people who are not yet connected with the parish into uh, a prayerful spiritual place because we're, we're blessed to have a bit of property here but even if you don't have a bit of property everybody can sit outside even in their their neighborhood um, and j- just simply bless the place with your prayers um, and people they say from all the surveys you're seeing especially in the Episcopal surveys right now the number one people place that people say they feel the spirit is outside so why not why not go there so that's some just some of the ways we're trying I love that. Thank you. Thank you. I want you to talk a little bit about where food um, fits in to all of this. Um, you know, this is essentially a, a, a food uh, podcast. Um, you know, we're a part, <clears throat> we share in a, a, a faith that gathers around a dining room table. Um, and uh, food is central to how we identify um, as as uh, followers of Christ. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, I love some honey. I, I, that that should be evident. But for me, honey is more than just something delicious. It's it's medicinal, and they and I mean that sign in a kind of uh, real way. They they actually used to use it with its antiseptic purposes as uh, like wound dressings, even up up to the. Uh, civil war it's it's been that uh, well used but i also mean it in kind of a, a soul way um when i sometimes i'll visit parishioners who are in deep distress or friends or or whomever for whom i'll bring a little bit of honey with me as a way of saying you know whenever you use this know that it comes with prayers and it's to to kind of sweeten the heart as they will often say and that's something that um uh, indigenous cultures have used a long for long times using little little or big feasting moments as a way of opening the heart to God. Um, So I tried to use the honey in that way. Um, More liturgically speaking, I absolutely um, would love to call more and more Christians back to the the deep practices of feasting and fasting. Um, The lack of food being a a great example of of a spiritual practice. Now, I'll, I'll say all this with a caveat. Fasting in modern times is is very tricky because so many people suffer from eating disorders and disordered eating. So I'm giving a little bit of a a warning with all of that, that fasting um, is a way that we can grow in our spirituality only if it's a gift. So don't don't take this as a uh, everybody should fast. But if for um, for you, fasting can be a spiritual practice, I find by and large, it tends to be one of the, the ancient practices that can be abandoned by Christ- modern Christians in some ways. Um, very few people do much more than perhaps give up some sort of chocolate or something for Lent. Uh, but fasting is cross-cultural. We see it in almost all, uh, all religions, all um, uh, different types of people throughout history, because it asks the soul and the body to first of all take a break from digesting so much we we eat more than our ancestors ever would have been able to eat and sometimes letting our system calm down for a moment lets us ask the question of our of our spirits what are we really hungry for what are we really looking to be fed for and often that answer uh, comes back to us as we're we're searching for the spirit it also puts us in community with with those who are in need and those who do not have the banquets we tend to sit down to every day. And and I say we with a lot of quotation marks because there may be many of us out there who don't have that. And this helps us remember 
for whom we can also make sure are fed as well. So I'm, I'm engaging in a few um, fasting practices this year. In addition to some of the other fasts I, I keep, this, this new one this year is I'm going up to my tribe at the Sault Ste. Marie tribe um, for their fall fasting ceremony. And this is something I've never done with them before. So um, I can't tell you by experience. I can tell you where I'm prepping my heart for. Uh, it's it's not unlike the traditional vision quest. We, uh, we will go out to Sugar Island, which is where my grandfather was born, and we'll sit in the woods in individual spots for several days without food, without anything else. And we'll just sit in the woods with our first family, as they call it, nature, and see what is given to us in that time of fasting. You finish that time with a sweat lodge, and then you have a grand feast, uh, and and you mar marry that um, emptying, that kenosis with a deep in intake of the love of the community that's been surrounding you with prayer during your time of fast. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to it with trepidation, awe, and excitement. <laughs> wow, that sounds incredible. Um, I would love to hear. You know, perhaps you'll be podcasting about that on the Hivecast or somehow reflecting on that so that we could uh, um, kind of vicariously share what that experience has been. But what I, I love even hearing you present it with is this idea that you have to prep for these things, you know, and Lent often, uh, maybe just speaking for myself as one who follows the liturgical calendar, like we all do, we are always surprised when it's like right there in front of us. And there's a sense that, you know, we know when it's coming and we might prepare for it by looking at our quote unquote programming, but there's this other spirituality, spiritual work that we need to do to prep ourselves, to prepare for that journey and letting um, whatever the disciplines we're going to take on, you know, the Jessimas are no longer really a thing in the Episcopal Church, but um, now I go, oh, there was some wisdom in that prepping the heart for this shift in being present to what the Spirit has to give us. And I don't know, I wonder whether there are small ways we can even do that with each day before a meal. Like, how do we prep ourselves instead of just being so ravenously hungry without thinking? We can, we can prepare, right? I love, I love that preparation aspect you're highlighting so much. I find that most fasts um, get into real trouble by day two and a half uh, because people haven't uh, cut out sugar beforehand and that, or, or caffeine, and now they have a crazy headache and forget it. <laughs> My mom, <laughs> when I used to fast as a teenager uh, in particular, before I really started understanding the preparatory nature of this, by day two of Lent, she would say, eat a bagel, you are terrible right now because <laughs> they just hadn't prepped for it right and, and, and that goes into the spirituality too yeah well, so um, so I'll ask, like given, I mean, we are needing to come to the close of our time and I know we've been talking about fasting, but I, I also love the idea that at the end of this particular fast that you'll do, that there'll be this community praying for you and then giving you a feast. And so what is the, what's the food, the, the meal that makes you sigh with comfort that mm. helps you to break that fast and know that you're entering into something that's really nourishing and holy? Mm. Oh, what a fun question that is. And yeah, isn't that just the pattern, right? You know, as, as Christians, we're not all about, you know, this fasting lifestyle. Lent is only 40 days, but Easter is a feast of 50 days, right? So it's always emphasis on that. So yeah, um, gosh, homemade bread with a little bit of honey on it will do, will fix anything that ails me. That right there is amazing. Uh, and I, I could make a meal out of that. So that, it, to me, it's almost Eucharistic. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, it, it, it covers a lot of the food groups. I mean, honey is such an incredible, complex, comprehensive um, food source that I bet you're right. 
It is, and it and it matches the very early church's liturgical traditions too. In the very early church, they have we have records of some of the earliest uh, Eucharists where they they served brand new Christians at the Easter Vigil who would come in from this huge fast and have this huge feast. Um, the very first thing they would get is the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, and coolly enough, awesomely enough, a little bit of milk and honey together. And that was because it was baby food. And so like, here they are, brand new baby Christians born anew, given that as part of the Eucharistic feast. So I think that's pretty good. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Oh my gosh, we should totally revive that. Like with all of the honey people keeping bees, like wouldn't it make sense for a parish like... I mean, maybe do this. I don't know. But to say, here's the honey that we have produced right here. It's local. It's grounded here. And welcome to the community, right? I love it. Anything, anything that cool, weird and mystic, it's it's up my alley. So, (laughs) and honey related. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. We are clearly um, can go on forever. But, you know, as all good things, uh, this needs to, we need to, we need to wrap. But before I do that, Everyone needs to um, check out Hillary's podcast, The Hivecast. And you can find that. Um, let's see. Where can you find that? You can I'll, find that on Apple Podcasts. and You can find it wherever you find fine podcasts. We, we list it everywhere. And if you'd like to know more about The Hivecast and The Hive in general, please check out our website at thehiveapiary.com, thehiveapiary.com. And you can find a link to the podcast from that website, too. Well, you can find out more about a Spade, Spoon, uh, Soul, and some of our upcoming podcasts but on our Facebook page. Um, just, you know, put in Spade, Spoon, Soul, and you'll find us. Or send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Hillary. This has been such a great conversation, and we will be sure to put as many of the links that you've mentioned on, in the show notes of Triple uh, S, and so look for those. And as we close out, I wanna thank our producer, who's always in the background, but does all the amazing things to make this podcast sound as good as it does. Derek Weston, who is also a Presbyterian pastor, community organizer, urban farmer, filmmaker, podcaster of his own. The list doesn't end. And um, we give thanks to the multi-talented Jay Side Botham for the artwork that helps make our podcast look great when it's on social media. And for Brian Lee for the group, the Ryan Lee for the groovy music. So thanks all. So until next time, we hope you find ways to connect your soul your spade or spoon or both. Take care, everybody.